Good morning. Welcome to Collective Church. If we've never met before, my name is Tyler, and I am one of the lead pastors. I lead alongside of my wife, Lee. We're glad that you are here with us. We're in the series called Tough Questions. And it's so interesting when we think about how we are being formed and shaped. The reality is that for so many of us, we are being formed and shaped by all the things that we are inputting, all the things that we are reading, and probably more accurate, all the things that we are watching, the things that we take in. We hop on YouTube, and all of a sudden, we're down the rabbit hole, and we've watched all these shorts or all these videos, or we're on TikTok, and we find all these things shaping us and forming us. And I think if we're being honest, one of the challenges is that we don't pay attention to how it shapes and forms us. One of the challenges of our specific moment in 2023 is the reliance on some of those things to shape us. We're formed by 15, 30, 60 second clips and we go, yeah, that makes sense. That must be true. Maybe you've seen it. Someone shares a video that they're that they're saying something that goes against what you have believed or thought, and you're going, is that true? Do I believe that now? What, what do I do with this? When it comes to the Bible, we will find videos that will claim that the Bible can't be trusted. Short little clips that are going, it's so clear, and how can you be so dumb to believe in the Bible? And it causes a lot of confusion, For those of us that would call ourselves Jesus followers, followers of the way of Jesus, we go, is that that what the Bible actually says? And for those outside of Christianity, they're going, is that true? Can the Bible, a book that has existed in its current form for almost 2,000 years, can it be trusted? Can I trust the Bible? We're going to spend some time and we're going to talk through that, but before we do, can I just, as a human being, acknowledge something? And I've shared with a couple people on the team. There are people that dedicate their whole life to this. They've written many, many books, and I've got like 40 or 45 minutes. And so let me just up front tell you, I cannot be exhaustive. I'm going to look at a few areas, but my encouragement would be if you're in the room and you're like, I, I really want to go further, I, I want to I understand this more, I have some phenomenal books that would be really helpful for you. And, and my encouragement, I'm actually going to, in the co-group discussion guide this week, include some books. If you go, I want to read more, I want to I understand this better, I, I really, I want to go deeper in this area, I want to encourage you to do so. And I specifically say in the context of co-group because I think that it's valuable for us to do this in community, not just in isolation. I think one of the things that's become such a challenge and and real obstacle for us is that as we are being shaped and formed, we're doing it in increasingly isolated places where we don't have a community that goes, hey, um, have you thought about this? And you're like, no, I'm I'm down this rabbit trail and I want us in the context of co-groups to actually work through things together. Before we go further around this idea of can we trust the Bible, I want to pray. I want to pray for me and I want to pray for us. God, I am so thankful. I'm so thankful that you speak to us, that you guide us. I'm so grateful that you speak through each of us. God, I pray that in these next few moments together that you would speak what you need to say to each person that's in this room or maybe that's watching online after. God, we need you. I need you. Holy Spirit, move. Guide us, strengthen us, challenge us, confront us. Do what you need to do so that we might not be the same that we walked in as. God, we surrender to you. I surrender to you. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the question, how can I trust the Bible or can I trust the Bible? Now, let me just start with an overview For some of us that grew up in the church, we go, yeah, I know some of this. And some of us that grew up in the church, we're like, I should know this, and I feel ashamed that I don't, and so I'm not going to say anything. And if that's you, I just want to let you know there's no shame here for that. One of the things that I think is is such a harmful thing is that we, we have questions, and we wrestle, or we go, I don't know this stuff. And we go, like, I probably should know, so I just won't say anything. Not here. 
And so let me just give, let me give an overview. Wow, my remarkable went to sleep. <laughs> okay, what is the Bible? Bible? The Bible is a collection of 66 smaller books. One book, but it's made up of 66 smaller books. 39 of those books we call the Old Testament, and 27 books we call the New Testament. And if you look at the Old Testament, that was the Jewish scriptures, the Torah, and then beyond. And, and so it was significant, certainly, for the Jewish people. And then the New Testament came along, and in it we see it split by Jesus and then after Jesus. And so Old Testament and New Testament. Maybe you've been in a hotel before, and you've pulled out a Gideon Bible, and you're like, wait a second, this is missing some stuff. And in contrast, some of us, we go, I'm going to read the Bible, so I'm going to start at the very beginning. And we're like partway through Genesis going, you lost me. Like, I don't even know where to start. 66 books, Old Testament and New Testament. And you might even wonder, okay, were there a bunch of different languages? The Old Testament primarily written in Hebrew, the language of the Jewish people. And the New Testament in Aramaic and Greek, common Greek. So we have three languages, two testaments, they make up the Bible. And something that's really helpful for us to know that some of us in the room, we didn't even know was the reality, is that there are a handful of genres in the Bible. And so all of the books that we find, they're not all the exact same kind of book. It's not like you just go, well, it's, it's 66 books and they're all exactly the same. There's different genres, different types of books. Let me, let me lay out what those, one, what those genres are. First, there's narrative, books that are historical, books that are meant to tell a story of a people or a time-specific books. There are law books, books that do have rules and ways of life. There's also poetry books. There are books in the Bible that are meant to be poetry, and we read it like poetry. There's wisdom books that are meant to speak into our lives and show us what it looks like to be wise. There's prophetic books or prophecy books, books of prophecy. Those are words from God to his people. There are epistles. Epistles are a different word for letters. And those are the books that are written letters to specific churches or specific people. There's also the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of the life of Jesus. And then finally, there's apocalyptic books, which sounds really intense. They're like the apocalyptic books. And they speak to the end of things. And just as a caution, some of us are like, yeah, that's where I started, in Revelation. Maybe don't. Because <laughs> like, there's a lot of discussions where people are like, what do I do with this? And so we have those, those different genres, narrative, law, poetry, wisdom, prophecy, epistle, gospel, and apocalyptic. Now here's why it's really important for us to understand this. Because I think some of us, we go, I didn't know all of that was in there. And if you want some resources, again, there's some helpful resources that go, these are under this genre and this genre. But here's why it's important. Would you read a poem the same way you read a history book? I'm asking, let me, anyone think yes? Anyone go, you read a poem by T.S. Eliot and you're like, yes, this might as well be history. No. And so the reality is when we come to scripture, when we come to the Bible, it's important for us to look at the specific genre and to go, okay, what does this genre mean? And what interpretive lens do I need to put on that will help me to understand what it is saying? We, we have to, as Jesus followers, if we take this seriously, we have to take it seriously as we actually read and interpret scripture to, to have the genre in mind, to also recognize that it's written to a specific group of people, and what does that mean, and what's, the, what's, what's helpful about understanding that? And then authorial intent. What did the author intend? Just say that differently. What did the author intend? What were they trying to communicate? What are they doing? Because even if we look at the four Gospels, they all tell the same stories and they all tell this grand narrative, but each one coming at it from a slightly different angle. It's helpful to know that. 
And so as we're engaging with scripture, we don't just kind of look at it and go like, oh, I don't know. Instead, we actually spend time going deeper and peeling back the layers. This is why a study Bible is a wonderful thing. Because you open up your study Bible and then it says, this is speaking to this specific thing or this area. And you go, oh, I didn't know that. We need to be willing to actually investigate Scripture more deeply. But one of the things that has become such an impediment to that is something that C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. And this idea came from his friend, Owen Barfield, who said it like this, and you'll see it on the screen. Chronological snobbery is the presumption fueled by the modern conception, conception of process, progress, that all thinking, all art, and all science of an earlier time are inherently inferior, indeed childlike or even imbecilic compared to that of the present. Now, if you pay attention, this is what we see in 2023. Chronological snobbery, the presumption fueled by the modern conception of progress, we're progressing to where? I don't know, but it must be better because it's the future. And he's saying that all thinking, all art, all science of an earlier time are somehow in inherently inferior, indeed childlike or even imbecilic compared to that of the present. This is the cultural moment we find ourselves in. J.I. Packer, who is a Canadian uh, pastor, he provided some really helpful understanding of this reality of chronological snobbery. He says this, and this is, the, this is the axiom that we see of our day. The newer is the truer. Only what is recent is decent. Every shift of ground is a step forward, and every latest word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. Now, it's important that we think about this chronological snobbery because it's everywhere. And I think what's, what happens is so often we just become numb to it. And what I want to do is just point out where we are and recognize that this idea is the reality and it's the culture that is around us. And yet it does not line up with the way of Jesus. And what happens is we approach the biblical text with our so-called enlightened 2023 perspective and think we must know better. And we approach this text that for thousands of years has been changing lives and for thousands of years it had, has had deep and thoughtful theologians and communities wrestling with these ideas and we go, I must know better. Chronological snobbery. And we miss the generations of scholarship and people that have navigated and wrestled with all the same things we think somehow we know better long before we did and have come to conclusions that over time have proved the test of time. And in 2023, we go, no, 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 but they clearly, 2,000 years, they got it all wrong. We now are, we, we know better. Chronological snobbery. And we find ourselves looking at scripture with this lens and I think what has happened for many of us is we actually miss all of the beauty of what's actually happening. It is important that when we come to the Bible that we don't just come at it from a surface level and just everything at face value. There are things in the Bible that we can approach at face value and then there are other things that there is a richness of depth there that what we read through our Western lenses, Jewish audiences or Jewish rabbis were unpacking and peeling back and going, this speaks to this and this, and this uses this literary device that actually emphasizes this. It's even better than you realize. The thing that's so amazing about studying scripture, the more you do it, the more you realize you, there's so much more under the surface. I find I continually go back to books and I'm like, wow, it's better than I thought. And the invitation for us is not to think in 2023, we probably have all the answers, but instead in humility of going, what has the historical church been saying? What have scholars along the way been saying? How can we learn from those who've come before? See, in a culture that says the newest is the best thing, the way of Jesus stands in opposition because we stand on the shoulders of the people that came before. 
We're here because of them. And so we don't look back and go, you know what, no one, 2,000 years of history, they did, not, they did not know. We know better. Imagine how arrogant that is. Like if we honestly go, you know what, I think I have all the right answers, and then you look, and I've done this before where I see something in scripture and I'm like, I noticed this, and then I go back, and there have been times, admittedly, that I go to a bunch of different commentaries and a bunch of different authors and go, turns out I'm wrong. Turns out what I see is not, is not. but then I've also had other times that I'm reading stuff and I go, I've never noticed this before. Am I the first person to have that thought? And again, I do some research and go, nope. <laughs> nope. There are generations of people that have come before that have gone, hey, if you just saw the beauty of this and if you noticed this connection and, and made this realization and looked at this genre or this author, if you saw it, you would actually see how beautiful it actually is. And what we realize if we look at the Bible with this different lens, this this. this healthier perspective that actually embraces, embraces ancient perspective, we start to see all of the nuance and beauty in Scripture. We start to learn about the, how the authors use literary devices or metaphors to speak powerful truths to us, life-changing truth that we can miss if we're not careful. And so there are things like perceived contradictions in the Bible that is brought up in a TikTok video. Like, it's so clear that this is a problem that if we actually go and learn from who came before, they go, actually, it's not nearly as confusing as you think. And so what we find is we find a, a culture, certainly through social media, that the intention is to add to confusion. And when we look at the historical church, we realize, you know what, there's a lot less confusion than I realized. Things are a lot clearer than I thought. And actually, there are some really brilliant people that thought through some of the things that we're now going, well, we need to rethink. There are some, there, I think it's valuable even for you to know, and again, I would go, you can test that, is that there is a depth of scholarly um, resources and libraries that challenge and confront all of the things that we see reduced to quick little quips that are just trying to disconnect people from faith. And they point to the depth and truth that we can find in the Bible. So 66 books in this Bible, two major parts, three languages, and multiple genres. But who wrote it? Like, was it just God and he was up with his chisel and he was just writing out scripture? I mean, some of us, we, we have ideas and we think we know who wrote the Bible. is people. People inspired by God. Scholars believe somewhere in the range of 35 to 40 individual authors that made up the 66 books that we find in the Bible. 35 to 40 people that wrote over the span of 1,500 years. And it's also important for us to understand that in the culture that most of the Bible that we find ourselves in, it was, it was an oral tradition. And so that meant that they didn't write everything down. Instead, they shared with each other verbally everything that they heard, everything that they knew. And if you think about it, like there, there's a part where it kind of heaps hot coals on my head because our attention span, I don't know if you've noticed it, or I'll just... I'm sure your attention span's great. Mine's not so good anymore. I've been so shaped and formed by sound bites and small things that increasingly I notice my, my memory for certain things or my attention span is less. Do you know what early Christians would do? They would verbalize because they had memorized full books of the Bible. And not just like one, like a bunch of them. Can you, can you imagine that? I had professors when I was in seminary that would do that. They were like... I, this year, I'm memorizing all of Romans. And you're like, whoa. And in that culture, it was really, really valuable because that's how they transmitted information. And so they needed to make sure what they were saying was accurate. But it raises the question in 2023, we're skeptical, we're a little bit hesitant. Wait a second, so if it's, if it's all oral tradition, then when did it become written? And how do we know we can trust that? How do we know we can trust what was oral to now what is written? Well, that's brought up a really valuable science called 
Textual criticism. Textual criticism. Now, Nadia last week spoke about Alpha and the significance of Alpha and invited you to, to bring people and to come to Alpha. And part of Alpha is exploring some of the big questions around faith. And so what I, what I want to do is there is a section from Alpha that talks about this textual criticism. And I want to show you this little clip from one of the Alpha sessions for two reasons. One, I think it's helpful. I think that there are things in this that you go, I didn't know that, and that helps me. But two, what I want to do is also give you a little snapshot, a little view into what Alpha is and what it could be. Because maybe you're in the room and you're like, yeah, she said to invite someone to Alpha, and I, I think that sounds like a good idea, but what am I inviting into? And so let me just give you a little snapshot. So if you want to play the clip, this is about textual criticism from Alpha. Textual criticism examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous History of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. Professor F.J.A. Hort, one of the greatest scholars in the area of textual criticism, concluded that, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. And no secular historian would disagree with that conclusion. So, valuable to know. Helpful for us, because part of it is what we hear is that Christianity is anti-intellectual. It's one of the messaging that maybe you've heard, I certainly have seen, and yet we find this, and I think it's helpful certainly with Alpha that you realize, no, there are brilliant scholars, there are people that are very intellectual, that don't just look at this and go, yeah, it's probably good, but actually study and go, there is a tremendous amount of evidence that actually proves the integrity of Scripture. And so it is important that for those of us that would call ourselves followers of the way of Jesus, that we know that we can trust the manuscripts that make up the Bible. When it comes to the Old Testament, which contains more ancient texts, it causes us to ask the question, are there also a high level of, uh, of consistency through manuscripts? And the short answer is yes. I want to read something from Bill Bright. He has this beautiful article, brilliant article. And I thought, okay, I can summarize this or I can just read it and I think it's helpful. 
So Bill Bright is talking about, about the Old Testament and the manuscripts that we have. He says, one of the most important factors supporting the accuracy of the Old Testament is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which date from 200 B.C. to A.D. 68. In 1948, a Bedouin shepherd boy was traveling the north, northwest rim of the Dead Sea when he discovered a jar in a cave containing scrolls that had been hidden for nearly 2,000 years. The term Dead Sea Scrolls became the standard designation for the fragmentary manuscripts discovered in the limestone caves around the Dead Sea. To the astonishment of biblical archaeologists, all of the books of the Bible except the book of Esther are represented in the collection. In comparison with Old Testament manuscripts of a thousand years later, so they compared what they saw in the Dead Sea Scrolls with a thousand, what they have a thousand years later, it shows little or no variation between them. Contained in the manuscripts was a copy of the oldest known Hebrew manuscript of the book of Isaiah. Strikingly, the document is extremely similar to the book of Isaiah found in today's Bibles. Of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, there are only 17 letters in question. Ten of these letters are simply a matter of spelling, which does not affect the sense. Four more letters are minor stylistic changes, such as conjunctions. And the remaining three letters comprise the word light, which is added in verse 11 and does not affect the meaning greatly. Thus, in one chapter of 166 words, there is only one word, three letters in question, after a thousand years of transmission. And this word does not significantly change the meaning of the passage. Isn't that fascinating? And I think for those of us that are followers of the way of Jesus, for us to know that is valuable. Like you go, wow, this is why we can trust what we actually find. But then how did they pull it all together? Because we can trust the manuscripts, but how did they decide which books they would include and which they wouldn't? And, and what did that look like? We call this the canon of Scripture. The canon. And there are some phenomenal books that go into depth with this. And again, I would highly recommend, if you're really interested in how did Scripture come together, because I've seen some things, like I've seen even some short little videos that are like, it was a political play or they did it to, to say certain things. But actually, if you look at the canon and how it developed, there was multiple councils, multiple groups of people who went through the process of determining which books should be included in the Bible. And each council, all of them spanning over 200 years, would use consistent principles and the principles were similar to these on the screen. First, they would be asking, was the author an apostle? The apostle is the people that walked really closely with Jesus. The person that write this, are they an apostle? Or did they have a close relationship with an apostle? There was an authority that was there and a trustworthiness with the people that had seen and walked with Jesus. And second, they would look at the church as a whole and ask, is the book already accepted by the church at large? Is this something that, there, that, that the church is already going, this is valuable, and we value and, and hold this in high regard, and they're looking as a whole? Third, was the book consistent with doctrine and orthodox teaching? And fourth, did the book reflect the high moral value reflecting the work of the Holy Spirit? And so these councils, through hundreds of years and multiple layers, they went through this process of going, what are the books that God's intent is to pull together for Scripture? And it wasn't manipulated by political power or agenda, but instead God's refining direction over many years of guiding and directing his people to put together the Bible. And you know what's really interesting in those discussions? There are only really, there are five books that were in question that they're like, we're not sure if we should add those. And it's important to note that none of those five in question were the Gospels. The books that we find that are uh, written by Paul, none of those letters from Paul to his church, none of those were in question. 
And so the things that we put our hope and our faith in, there was no disagreement across multiple groups of people. Now, can we just, just even for a moment, just imagine? If you think about, uh, I mean, you look at our political situation. Do Do you see how hard it is to get groups of people to agree on things? Like, is it easy? I, uh, I one time was part of a jury for a stabbing, which is its own story that I'll have to tell. 12 people, 12 people that have to all choose the same outcome. Do you think that was easy? Let me just give you, no, no. So imagine what it would require for there to be multiple generations of councils all continually getting to this place where they go, this is where God is leading. It would take a move of God's Holy Spirit. And so they pull together this canon, and they call it the closed canon. Now, that's important for us to know, the closed canon, because there is no room for there to be new people that go, I have new books that you need to add to the Bible. And it's, it's interesting because in our minds we're like, whoa, people wouldn't do that. There's a, there's a place that would call itself a church that's not far from here where the people that lead it, they give themselves permission to write new scripture. They don't do it, but they're like, we could if we wanted to. Let me just tell you, like warning, <laughs> problem. So the closed canon is intended so that new people aren't coming going, I have a new revelation, we need to add to it. But also, it's closed in the sense that we're not removing things. We don't get to look at the Bible and go, well, I don't really like this part, and I don't really want this, and so I'm just going to make it in my own image. It is complete. And it's important for us to know that. And let me just be very, very clear. I've spent a whole chunk of time talking about how we can trust the Bible from outside of itself. I'm not using the Bible proof text to go, okay, the Bible says it can be trusted, so... End of discussion, let's all go home. I want us to understand that there's a lot of other things outside of the Bible that actually speak to its trustworthiness. But then I also want to speak to one that speaks to its truth from within. Paul, in his letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, said this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. He said, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong In our lives, it corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And so, in light of this chronological snobbery that we find so rampant, I I just want us to acknowledge how unbelievably arrogant it is for us to somehow go, you know what, actually, we can look at all the generations, thousands of years of scholars and work and go, no, I think I have the new way, the new thing. I think everyone else, the whole historical church has missed it and I have figured it out. You know what I'm learning the more that I grow and the more that I'm studying is that much of the work for leaders and for the church is rediscovering the practices of the way of Jesus. The early church, I look at the early church and it has its own challenges and yet there are so many things that I think we have missed. We look at a church that has been practiced for thousands of years in the face of of actual persecution and death and yet it thrived And the invitation for us that would call ourselves followers of the way of Jesus is to rediscover what is it about what they believe and how they live that that developed this kind of resilient discipleship that could handle all the things that they navigated. And we have this cultural tendency, especially in light of chronological snobbery, to read the Bible selectively and to cut out the parts that offend us or bother us or we don't know what to do with. And it's easy for us to go, you know what, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Like, you know, we just, but let me just tell you where that can end up, historically, where that can end up. What happened is in the, and I'll unpack it in a future week, but one place was in the development of what was called the slave Bible. 
You had slave owners that took the Bible, and they're like, there's a lot of stuff in here about freedom and, and being rescued, so let's just remove that, because we don't want to give hope to people. We want, we want to ensure that we make sure that there's no hope for freedom or for rescue. There's this message of liberation that we remove all of it. And so there was a Bible that was handed around that was called the Slave Bible. And it was used to oppress people. And it did the oppressing and it harmed people because it did not have the full counsel of the Bible. When Paul writes in 2 Timothy that all of Scripture is inspired and all of it is useful to help us to know where we've gone wrong, that is true. And in the past, in history, every time that human beings have taken the Bible and gone, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make it in my image. It has harmed people. It has not just been a neutral thing. And so I, I get it in the context of 2023, we go, but there's some things in there that it seems like that's harming. Well, the alternative is we look at the creator of the universe who knows how all of us are designed and has an intention for his creation, and we go, you probably don't know right. I think I'll take it from here. And it leads to really, really, really harmful things. And I want, you to let, I want to just be really honest and tell you that there is... That's not the first time that happened, nor will it be the last. And this tendency to try to make the Bible in our image is a massive problem. And when we do that, we will experience a different kind of bondage. It will harm us, and I do not want that. We make the Bible in our image, and we find ourselves in bondage to ourselves, our desires, and the lies of what a good life really is. It leads to bondage of sin itself. And we have to be really careful about this kind of false teaching. We have to be really honest with wrestling through the things in, Bible, in the Bible and what all of the historical church has taught us and faithfully figure out what is it saying and how do I make sure I'm not distorting it to say something I wish it said. And can I just be really honest and say, this isn't just in controversial things. There's, there's definitely some things that we would consider controversial, the Bible's very clear about, but then there's other things that we go, um, that's not even controversial, and still that's hard for me. I want to just let you know in the Bible, God is clearer than we like to admit it. And oftentimes we go, it just seems so muddy, but it's muddy because we're reading things through this interpretive lens that is harming us. And when we actually rediscover what the Bible says, we go, actually, it's really, really clear. It was interesting. I was listening to uh, an interview that Matthew McConaughey was doing with someone. And I don't know about you, but he's my favorite theologian. <laughs> but he was talking. And, and, and there's been moments that you can tell he's wrestling with a faith in God, and I'm like, that's beautiful. I, I, I honestly, I can't imagine what it must be like for people that are in Hollywood to navigate, how do I faithfully follow Jesus? And not just Hollywood, like in any environment where there's significant external pressure, it's really difficult, and so I feel for the guy. But he was talking, and he was saying, I, uh, I, I, I like this stuff, and I like Jesus, but I really struggle with the miracles. And so I just kind of, I just kind of just, kind of pretend those don't exist, which is interesting because another one of the Bibles was the Thomas Jefferson Bible where he took everything out that represented miracles. There wasn't a lot left in the Bible. And so he goes, well, it's really uh, Jesus' teachings are helpful, and, but, but without the miracle, we actually miss the most important and central thing of our faith. I once was officiating a wedding and uh, and. You have conversations with people when they find out I'm a pastor. It can go a bunch of different ways. <laughs> some good, some awkward, some kind of just interesting. I had one where they were like, do you, do you actually believe what the Bible says? I'm like, yeah, yeah, kind of built my whole life on it. And they're like, really? Like, you believe the miracles? And I was like, I believe that Jesus said he would die, died, and then rose again. It's the center of my faith. Yeah, I believe in the miracles. 
in contrast to Jesus bringing, so Jesus coming back from life, in contrast, do any of the other ones seem more unlikely? Like I look at taking the fish and the bread and multiplying it, I'm like, well, he rose Jesus from the dead, so yep, that makes sense to me. Now that could seem really reductive, and you might go like, wow, that's a lot of, yeah, it sounds like childlike faith. But the more that I realize that Jesus actually did everything that he said, he said, I would die. He said, I will give my life. I'll pay the price and then I'll rise again and then pulled it off. The more that I go, I think I can trust all of it because of him. And what's really fascinating, again, if you're like, I I need to read, there is so much research that people have done that actually prove the truthfulness. And this is outside of the church, the truth of the resurrection, now, there's different discussions or like, well, did he, did he not? But they can't actually figure out how it makes sense. He was dead and he was alive. Let me tell you, the miracle of resurrection is true. 500 plus people saw it. And so we look at the Bible and we find miracles and we find stories and we realize that they are true. And let me just tell you, I don't just believe that the resurrection is true because I know what Jesus did. I believe the resurrection is true because I see it in people's lives all the time. I see people being rescued from a life of death and coming to life. I see people that were destined to move in a direction that would harm them actually turning around, repenting, and then finding life in Jesus. I see people's lives change radically where you go, who is that person? I've seen the resurrection power in my life. Now, we live in a culture where experience trumps everything else. But let me just suggest to you that the experience that we have as Jesus followers actually proves what the Bible says is true. We submit our experiences to the Bible, but when we embrace what God wants to do, we find ourselves living out exactly what he said would happen. All of my experience is submitted to and confirmed by the Bible because of what Paul said to Timothy. It's inspired by God, and all of it is useful. So can I trust the Bible? And my answer would be absolutely. But I want to speak to one area of the Bible that I think beyond the academic And beyond what Paul is saying, that I think also speaks to the truth of the Bible. If you actually read the Bible and and take it away, if you've been if you've been in Sunday schools and you've seen um, you've seen all the different stories and they're like flannel graph or like little cardboard cutouts, and you're like, there David killed the bad guy, and you're like, yeah, that's it. And then you read about David. And you're like, yikes. Like, he did some great things. Pretty jacked up. And you know what's fascinating? If you actually go down all the characters that that we talk about, and you're like, be more like David. And I go, kind of. (laughs) Be more like David in that he was a foretaste of Jesus. Be like that, but maybe some other things. If you read all the characters in the Bible, they're all jacked up, all of them. All of them. Do you want to know the only one that isn't? Jesus, who claimed to be God, fully God, fully man. Everyone else is jacked up. Now, I want you to think about the trustworthiness of a book. If a book was trying to present a faith where you go, if you follow, everything will be better, and this will be great, and this is what you should do, why would you include all of the worst parts of humanity? You wouldn't. If I was writing it, I'd go, here's how everything's perfect, your life will be wonderful, and everyone who ever followed him was great, and yet we find that not to be true. And I think for me, I look at that and it speaks to the trustworthiness of the Bible because the Bible is not trying to sugarcoat humanity. What it's actually doing is pointing to humanity's desperate need for Jesus, the Savior. And I read the Bible and I realize, oh, it turns out we're all messed up and desperately in need of Jesus. We see people that are murderers, people that are adulterers, people that practice incest, leadership fails, lack of faith, all of it on display. And it makes complete sense that then we see Jesus in contrast to all of it. 
And if the Bible was meant to be some sort of propaganda, I do not believe that this is how it would be. And we see all of this. We see genres, we see people, we see how the manuscripts can be trusted. All these different genres, different authors, different times, and yet all consistently pointing us to the direction of God through Jesus. All of it working together. 35 or 40 authors over 1,500 years all pointing in the same direction, humanity's desperate need for Jesus. All of it exalting him and leading to the kind of church that could handle not just being told that they were weird or uncomfortable at facing death for believing in him, and yet they would not recant. It shows us that the Bible is true. And we look through all of the Bible and all the things, and whether, whether we have certain genres where, where, where literary techniques are used, or whether there's, it's, things are expressed historically or metaphorically or in poetry, we realize that all of the Bible is true. And so at Collective, you might be wondering, okay, talked lots about the Bible. What do you, what do you believe as a church? And it's on our website, but I'll put it up on the screen. At Collective, what do we believe about the Bible? We believe that the Bible is God's word given to all of humanity. It was inspired by God and written by human authors. It is truthful and the final authority in all matters on which it speaks. The Bible was given by God through chosen people and thus reflects the background styles and vocabulary of human writers. And let me just tell you, it holds up to thousands of years of scrutiny. Thousands of years of people going, I'm going to prove that this is not true. I'm going to prove that this is not right. I'm going to prove that God does not exist. And so far, they have not been successful. Why? Because it's true. People through through thousands of years, even today, giving their life willingly, laying down their life for the sake of this message because it is true. My challenge for you is do not become a chronological snob. Don't be formed by the patterns of this world. But instead, if you're wondering, like, I don't know if I believe all of this, I have no shortage of books you can read. And not just that, let me just tell you, I have books that, that I would disagree with things on that you can read. There's some really great books called The Counterpoints. Looks at one massive whatever theological discussion, and it approaches it from multiple different angles. And you have scholars that go, well, this, actually this. And you read it, and you start to go, oh, that's it. Oh, I know what's true. But it does not pretend to sugarcoat it. I'm not trying to get you to read stuff that just proves my point. I'm just telling you, all the research actually proves God's point. And so, for us, not just to, not just to go, I'm going to sit in my room and read and read by myself, but instead to embrace this life where you go, what does it look like to be co-learners together? What does it look like to engage with these discussions in the context of community? So you'll notice I said I'm going to send out the book list in the co-group discussion guide, because I think that's the best way for us to talk through those things, in community. And it's safe to go, I struggle with this, or I disagree with this, and to go, okay, let's talk through, why? What's not helpful is to go, I struggle with this, I don't believe in this, I'm gonna sit by myself and watch YouTube videos, I'll figure it out by myself. Because what ends up happening is we become formed by all these things, we go, that sounds true enough, people are compelling, okay, that makes sense. And then we find ourselves going down a direction that is not helpful for us. What if we actually looked at this seriously and went, yeah, how did the Bible come together? Yeah, can, can I trust that the Bible is the inspired word of God? What does it look like for this discussion to be a catalyst to further, further discussions for you? And so I don't know where you're at today. Maybe in here you go, okay, I'm I, I like what he's saying around trusting the Bible. I think it makes a lot of sense, but my struggle is I don't know how much I trust in God. Because we go, I've been hurt by things and people. Almost always our view of God is connected to our dads 
or the people that we have in our life that are in positions of influence or power, and so we put this through a filter. What does it look like to actually see God clearly again? Like maybe you're in the room and you go, I I really struggle to know that I can actually trust in God or trust in Jesus, and our prayer team, or Kevin will be up here, and there will be a few of us that would love to pray with you. Maybe you're in the room and you go, "I, I need to put my trust in God again, or I need to put my trust and faith in Jesus for the first time. If that's you, fill out a connect card. Come talk to one of us. Talk to me. Find someone with a lanyard and let us know. If you're not in a co-group and you're like, I want to grow. I'm enjoying the series. I want to get the most of it. Join a co-group. Do it together. Learn with others. Push back with others. Have kind of, the kind of conversations that actually strengthen our faith. This week, read your Bible and do it well. Again, I have some great books that would help you. And I'd love to give them, but here's what I know to be true. I can have ac- you can have access to stuff and still go, eh. And so there has to be some sort of willingness to go, I'm, I'm willing to explore this a little better. There's a book that I just, I just started that I'm really excited about that's about how we, how we read scripture poorly because of our Western perspective. And I'm like, this would be valuable So let me just be the person that says, this is not where I go, I've read all these books, you should maybe read some of them too. I go, I I need to constantly be reading and learning and rediscovering the ancient church and rediscovering the things that I have got wrong and and paying attention to how I've been formed by, by things that are not helpful and how I can be formed yet again by the way of Jesus. And finally, maybe you need to bring someone to Alpha. Because here's what I believe to be true about Alpha. First, it strengthens your faith. And second, it's really effective. And so maybe you come to Alpha and you go, you go, I want to know some of those things. I just feel uncomfortable being honest about that. Don't. Come. But if you're going, there are people in my life that are asking questions. I promise you there are right now. There are people that are going, is this all there is? Is this what life is supposed to be? Bring them to Alpha where we can have discussions, where we can talk through things. And I, as Lee and I lead that, we're not in there trying to like slam things down people's throats. We're using questions to draw out other questions and, and helping to, to go, Holy Spirit, where do you want to guide us in these discussions? But this is a really tangible place that you can do that, a tangible place that you can invite someone. And so what I want to do is I want to ask you to, to honestly, prayerfully consider Do I need to bring someone to Alpha? And notice I say bring, not invite. Bring. There is a significant impact in not just saying, hey, you should go to Alpha. Have fun. But instead going, we could go together. Because you know what happens? Is afterwards, you have conversations. That's sometimes where the best stuff happens. You're like, you know what we were talking about? I, I, what do I do with some of that? And you're like, well, let's talk some more. And suddenly you're in the car until 12 o'clock at night going, I just had the best. We get these messages from people in Alpha. I just had the best conversation because it, it opens up the conversations we want to have. And so Alpha starts this Thursday, uh, May 4th, and you can sign up at collectivechurch.ca. Same thing for co-groups. You can find the co-groups there. We'd love for you to get connected. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you.